And we're continuing our series this morning called Heart Matters, Lessons from the Life of David. And one thing you'll notice if you read the New Testament is that Jesus is often associated with David. In fact, one of the most common names for Jesus in the New Testament is Son of David. And there's a couple reasons for this. One of the reasons is that he's actually an ancestor of David, but I, I don't think that is the main message here. What I believe the New Testament is trying to tell us when over and over again Jesus is called Son of David is that there's just something about David, who he is, how he lives his life, the heart he has, that actually gives us a glimpse, kind of a foretaste of who Jesus is going to be. In other words, when David the king is at his best, we get kind of a look at the heart of our true king. And so David becomes for us this picture of someone connected to God, someone who's like Jesus. And so for a people, for a church whose mission is becoming like Jesus and making him known, this series really matters to us because our desire as a community is not just to be shaped externally by Jesus. We don't want just to have behaviors that line up with Jesus' behaviors. We want deep, internal, inside-out heart transformation that God would shape who we are at the, down into the very core of ourselves, that our hearts would be transformed to look more like Jesus. And today we're going to look at a quality of David's heart that I believe is central for us to embrace if we are going to, in fact, live in this world representing Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you have a Bible this morning, grab it. Open to 2 Samuel 9. If you forgot yours, pull one out of the pew rack in front of you. Uh, 2 Samuel 9. As you turn there, let me set the stage for you a bit for our story today. At this point in David's life, he is about 48 years old. Um, in our story today, he's been reigning as the king of Israel for about 11 or 12 years. And during that time, he has had magnificent success. He's won battles. He's taken back the capital city of Jerusalem. He's been gifted this fabulous place to live, this enormous palace. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant, this, this, this piece that represents the presence and power of God. He's brought the Ark back into the, the capital city of Jerusalem, symbolizing that Israel will now have God at the very center of their lives. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we read about just this slew, this whole string of victories that David, that David has. This is the chapter right before the story we're going to look at this morning. And, and in that chapter, there's this, there's this reoccurring theme, this summary statement that's said over and over again. It goes like this, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. When I was a kid, my grandpa had this statement he would make about people whose lives always seemed to work out well. He'd say, oh, you know so-and-so, they always end up smelling like a rose. Anyone ever heard that before? They always, like their life just always seems to turn out. They catch all the breaks. They are simply blessed. And friends, that's David, that's his life right now. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. He's been on this like decade plus long run of advancement and achievement and victory. You know David, he always ends up smelling like a rose. And so the question is, how will that shape him? How will he respond? What will that reveal 
about David. Because we all know how David responded in the cave. We know how he leaned on God when life was difficult and hard and he was constantly on the run for his life. Last week, Pastor Nick did a great job of talking about David and the heart that he had for the Lord in the cave. But now David's in a new season. Now the question is, what will progress and profit and prosperity reveal about David's heart? Because one thing I believe is that when a person experiences power, position, and privilege, what they do with that, how they respond in those moments says a lot about who they are on a core level. And so today, we're going to look at David's heart and from a place and from a posture of success. And once again, we'll be reminded why God says of him, this is a man after my own heart. Second Samuel chapter nine, we'll read the whole chapter. From this place of success and power and victory, David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar to the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. There's a word that emerges three times at the very beginning of this story. It's the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed, and you kind of have to do that little like grovelly, loogie creating sound at the beginning to make it sound legit. And our Bible translates this word um, with the English word kindness. And, and that kindness is an okay translation, but I believe it actually misses kind of the punch, the teeth, the full impact of what this word hesed is trying to communicate. In fact, one commentator I read this week said that this word hesed should be defined as kindness, goodness, 
and mercy-filled love all rolled into one. Kindness, goodness, and mercy-filled love all rolled into one. And so I think the best word, maybe a better English word to, to kind of translate for this word hesed is the word compassion. I, I believe that's what David is after here. That's what he's describing here. He says, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show compassion, kindness, goodness, mercy-filled love? Friends, today we're going to talk about compassion, how to have a heart of compassion. Today we're talking about true compassion, what it takes, what it looks like, what it means to have a heart that exudes and offers compassion to people in this world. And as we dive in, I just want to be clear about what we're talking about when we say compassion, because I think there's a lot of confusion about compassion in our world today. And so first and foremost, I want to point out that true compassion requires action. We see that in our story this morning. We are not today talking about feeling compassionate. Feeling compassionate is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. But it is not the same thing as the biblical call to compassion. Compassion, my friends, is an action word. It's a heart that is moved so deeply that it must act. Compassion is a feeling that is compelled to help. Now, I want to be clear about something as we get in. Sometimes the right action, the right compassionate thing to do is just listen or empathize or encourage or speak some words of truth or simply be with a person in the midst of their struggle. Compassion does not always mean fix, but it does mean Help in a way that the other needs. Guys, I'm going to go ahead and suggest you write that down. Compassion does not always mean fix, but it does mean help in a way that the other needs. See, it's not a passive thing to be compassionate. It is active. And in our story today, we see that in David. He is moved by something. He's feeling something. And we'll talk more about what he's moved by in a bit but he's not content to just feel. This wasn't just a sentimental thing. It had real land and income and food and servants attached to it. David's compassion helps change the reality of this young man, Mephibosheth's life. And you know what's interesting? Is there's a story, a scene in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus is with a crowd of people and he looks at this crowd of people and we're told it says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is feeling something here, right? He's feeling for these people and then listen to his response. Listen to the very next verse. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He says, I'm feeling compassionate, and now 
action must be taken. I am looking for someone to do something about it. God is looking for people willing to take action. You see, friends, one of the ways, maybe one of the best ways of defining the church is a community of people who offer the compassion of God to the world. A community of people so impacted, so changed, so transformed by the compassion of God in their lives that they are now turned loose to go and offer the compassion of God to the world. In other words, are you hurting? Are you struggling? Are you looking for guidance and meaning and purpose in this crazy, broken, messed up world that we live in? Well, maybe I can help. Maybe I can introduce you to someone that can help you make it through. Maybe I can help you see that you're not alone, that you matter, that you have value, that you are loved and treasured more than you can ever imagine. True compassion, friends, takes action. You see, so often in the church, I think we are too willing to just feel to feel convicted, to feel challenged, to feel empathetic, to feel bad, and then fool ourselves into believing that because we feel this way, our hearts must be good, and we never take action. We never step out and help or assist. We never take the next step of repenting and turning away from something and towards something else. We are too quick to treat compassion as a feeling, and yet, friends, true compassion always moves towards action. Next, we see that true compassion often requires the sacrifice of self-interest and worldly security. And if you haven't caught it already, these two points tie together. One of the re reasons why we are so willing sometimes to treat compassion as just a feeling is because when compassion takes action, it often requires the sacrifice of self-interest and worldly security. Let me unpack this for you a bit. To understand this passage, to really kind of feel the, the, the power and the bite of it, you need to understand that Mephibosheth is the grandson of King Saul, the man who ruled Israel right before David. This means that he, Mephibosheth, is David's number one competition for the throne, that he's a huge potential threat to David's security. You'll notice the way the story's told, Mephibosheth is called into David's presence. He's summoned, he's brought before David, and it says, he bowed down to pay him honor. That sounds so nice, doesn't it? The actual, the literal Hebrew translation there says, he throws himself prostrate on the floor before David. Then notice what David says to him. He says, do not be afraid. Why? Why does David feel the need to tell this young man, don't be afraid? Because he was afraid. <laughs> he was terrified. His understanding is certainly that David has brought him here to kill him, to remove and wipe out any and all competition to the throne. Friends, that's just how it worked in the ancient world. 
Whenever a new regime came into power, the new king would solidify his position by wiping out anyone who could lay claim to his throne throne from the old regime. He would just annihilate them all. And this didn't just happen in the ancient world. It happens in the Bible. Go back and read 1 and 2 Kings sometime. Over and over and over again. New king, in with the new, out with the old. Over and over And if anyone should be sensitive to sort of old claimants to the throne hanging around, if anyone should be sensitive to the possible overthrow of his kingdom, it's David. Because if you read 2 Samuel from the beginning, chapters 1, 2, and 3, what you'll discover is that back when David first became king, when when Saul first died and David became king, The people from his clan, David was from the clan of Judah. That's right, right on the tip of your tongue. Good job. David was from the clan. All of his clansmen were excited. David is king, right? But Saul, the first king, he wasn't from the clan of Judah. He was from the clan of Benjamin. Good job. Way to go. And all the Benjamites, they weren't all excited about David. In fact, the very first thing they do is they go and find Saul's oldest living son. Does anyone know his name? No lie, Ishbosheth. <laughs> Just because God likes to watch me try and say these names from up front. The Shibosheth and Ishbosheth, all the whole time, right? They go and find Saul's like, oldest kid, Ishbosheth, and they say, David's not king, Ishbosheth is king, and they actually anoint him and crown him king. And so now these two clans are warring. And they actually go through a terrible time of several years, civil war for several years, until finally David emerges triumphant. In other words, friends, David has been here before. His security, his interests have been challenged by a son of Saul before. And friends, the world would tell him, David, the only way for you to be really secure The only way for you to be politically safe is to hunt down every other direct descendant of Saul and kill him. You see, that's what worldly wisdom would tell David. But self-preservation and worldly security are not the driving forces of David's life. Self-preservation and worldly security are not the driving forces of David's life. The American dream isn't real high on David's priority list. In fact, what we see in David is that he's willing to risk. He's willing to give up what is easiest and safest and potentially even best for him in order to show God's compassion to someone else. And the question for us this morning simply how about us how about you when you look at your life and it comes down to it are you more driven by creating security for yourself are you more driven by protecting self-interest or are you motivated by compassion does compassion drive you or does it Or does protecting self-interest drive your life? Because not too many of us in here are tempted to protect our thrones, right? Any 
kings trying to protect their thrones in here. Not too many. But let me tell you this. Compassion will infringe on your life just like it infringed on David's. If you embrace compassion, it will impact you just the same way it impacted him. It will ask you to risk feeling uncomfortable. Compassion will ask you to risk feeling insecure. Compassion will ask you to risk feeling incompetent. Compassion will ask you to lay down the sense you have of wanting to be in control. Compassion will ask you to sacrifice your time and your energy and your money. You see, here's something about compassion that you need to know. It's rarely, if ever, convenient. When was the last time that you just stumbled upon an opportunity to be compassionate in a significant and major way and just thought like, wow, this is going to be so simple. It's not going to cost me anything at all. I think we'll do it. Compassion doesn't work that way. And friends, if convenience is your highest priority, you will miss so many opportunities to show compassion. Because compassion and convenience, they just don't go together. And here's another thing compassion will challenge in your life. Your pride. Your reputation. You know, right away, the first thing we learn about this son of Jonathan is what? Before we even learn his name, we learn something about him. That he is lame in both feet. Is there a descendant of Saul out there? Yes, there's a guy. He is lame in both feet. In other words, this is a young man who has a disability. And in our world, friends, there is at least an attempt to see people with disabilities as having the same significance and worth and value as everyone else. We have a long way to go there. But there's at least an awareness. There's at least an attempt. And I'll just pause to say this is very clearly the desired value of our church family here at Cedar Mill. Not only do we recognize people with disabilities as equal to us, we also recognize that they offer us the added blessing of understanding and seeing God in a way that we often can't and don't. So if you're a person, if you are a person who experiences a disability or you're a family that does, I want to say to you again, thank you for making our community deeper and richer and better. Thank you for helping us and teaching us to experience God in ways we could not on our own. Now, unfortunately, this is not the way the ancient world thought. In, in that culture, not even a common person, let alone the king, would associate with someone who was crippled. And so you see, when, when Ziba offers his report to David, when he comes in to kind of tell David about this young man, what he's saying to him is this, yes, there is a son of Jonathan, but unfortunately, he's not someone you're going to want to associate with. He's broken. He's beneath you. It will bring down your reputation if you show compassion to him. He is lame in both feet. But what does David say? This man who just gives us a little taste, just a foretaste of the heart of Jesus. He says, 
my reputation, what people think of me, will not prevent me from having a heart of compassion. He says, self-preservation and worldly security are not the driving forces of my life. You see, friends, they want to be. You know, you can make that statement today and tomorrow, self-preservation, earthly security, it'll be right there knocking on your door. Live for me, follow me, lean on me, rely on me, trust in me. David says time and time again, no, that will not define my life and existence. I'll be defined by the compassionate love of God. When I was in college, there was this guy on our dorm floor uh, named Ken. He was actually on our dorm floor for two years. For two years, I was on the same dorm floor as Ken. And uh, I knew Ken pretty well because he was in the physics department with me. Some of you are new around here and you don't know that I have my undergrad degree in physics, which is kind of weird. Um, but I was kind of part of this little physics group and I didn't really fit in, with, I wasn't kind of classic with the physics group. They were a little different than me, which is why I probably didn't end up doing physics and engineering. But the, the point is, is that Ken was in that group, so I knew him pretty well. Um, Ken was a loner, kind of isolated. He, I would describe him as socially awkward, not very good looking. Uh, he had personal hygiene struggles. That's the nice way of probably saying it. Um, but the thing that most stood out to me about Ken is I remember in the cafeteria at college, always seeing him sitting by himself. You know, and college is this place where, I mean, you just get to be with your people and you're there and you're together and you enjoy one another and you're eating lunch and there's this camaraderie and all these people experiencing community and life together and there'd be Ken sitting over there by himself. And I remember a few times we invited him to sit with us and a couple times we sat with him, but friends, I have to tell you, most of the time, didn't do that. Didn't reach out to Ken, didn't say, hey, come join us, come be a part, don't be alone. And looking back, I so desperately wish that I would have. And I don't know why I didn't. Maybe it was because I was... I wanted to be cool. I wanted people to see me hanging around people that weren't like Ken. Maybe it was because I didn't want to sacrifice or give up my time with my friends. Maybe I didn't want to sort of endure the awkward conversations that would happen when Ken was sitting at the table. There are all sorts of reasons and excuses not to do it, but I have to say, if I could go back, I think Jesus would say, hey, there's a guy over there who just needs some compassion. He just needs you to reach out and show the love of Christ. Got any Kens in your life? Got any people in your world that other people are tempted to ignore or walk by or cast aside, cast aside or pretend they don't exist? Friends, maybe God is asking you to set self-interest aside and instead offer compassion. And this leads to the third message I believe this story teaches about compassion, and that's this. True compassion replaces shame with dignity. True compassion replaces shame with dignity. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, we, we get the story of Mephibosheth. It's right after the big civil war between David and Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and David has emerged victorious. And now, 
All the family of Saul are panicked. They think David is coming for them, and so they are fleeing. And while fleeing the city, Mephibosheth was only five years old at the time, and his nurse, the one who cared for him, while fleeing the city, she tripped and dropped him, and this is how he became lame in both feet. This is when his uh, paralysis happened, when he's fleeing the city, scared for his life, scared to death of David. And so now... His entire existence has been living in hiding, fearing that someday David would find him, someday that David would come to kill him because he was just a potential heir to the throne. We're told that he's been living in a place called Lodabar. And uh, it's kind of interesting how the Bible gives us these random facts that he's living in Lodabar. Why would the Bible tell us that? Well, Lodabar is this place that's located on the other side of the Jordan River, way out in the middle of the desert. The name actually means Place of nothingness or place of no pasture. If any of you are familiar with California and you've ever been to Bakersfield, (laughs) real similar to living there. And when David finally meets Mephibosheth and he's scared to death and Mephibosheth refers to himself and he uses these words. He says, I'm a dead dog. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And this begs the question, how does somebody get to the point where that's how they view themselves? What kind of pain and isolation and constantly being overlooked and forgotten does somebody have to live through to get to the point where that's their response? I'm just like a dead dog. You see, Mephibosheth, has been living for a long time now with a lot of shame. The shame of his condition, the shame of his grandfather, the shame of, his, of the life that he's now forced to live out in the middle of nowhere and hiding. But then after he refers to himself this way, after he says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? David just says something to him and it's just one word, his name. He simply says, Mephibosheth. You see, there is so much power in a person's name. And what David is saying when he says just Mephibosheth's name is this. Mephibosheth, you are more than you think you are. You are more than just a threat. You are more than just an issue. You are more than just a statistic. You, Mephibosheth, are a person. You're a person who matters. You're a person with a value. You're a person who the Father is very fond of. You know, one of my favorite days at Royal Family Kids Camp, if you're new around here, every summer our church does a camp. We talk about it all the time, but it's a week where we invite foster kids, all these foster kids, to a week of camp, and we just throw camp out. We give them, like, the camp experience for a week. Um, It's free for for them, it's free for their families, and they come out and they just get loved on all week by their counselors. And one of my favorite uh, moments at camp, one of my favorite days is Monday. We'll all go out, it's actually next Sunday is our send-off day. We'll all go out on Sunday and we'll get everything ready and we'll get the camp set up and we'll pray and, and kind of decorate the rooms and get all set. And then Monday morning, the kids will check in here and they'll come out on a bus, like, you know, 50-some foster kids, ages 7 to 11, on a bus. You do not want to be on that bus. 
It's a long bus ride. It's the longest 45 minutes to an hour of your life. At any rate, they're on this bus and they're nervous and hyped up and scared. And, you know, they kind of express that in a lot of different ways. But then all of a sudden they turn down the long driveway onto the road of camp. And it's about a quarter mile. And this is maybe one of my favorite moments. The counselors and the staff have all decorated these poster boards, just the normal poster boards with the kids' names. And so if you're a counselor, you get two kids, and so you write their names, you kind of paint or Sharpie marker it on there and decorate it with stars and stickers and colors and stuff, and it's just their name, right? And the counselors line the road, this sort of maybe almost quarter mile driveway. They just line the road, and they hold up these signs, and they just cheer. And they run alongside the bus and kind of wave the kids' names at them. And to watch these kids, these little kids just hang out the window searching for their name, searching for their counselor. And the joy and the glee and the peace that they feel, the affirmation that wells up in their hearts when they see their name on a piece of cardboard. It's the power of a name. It's not just a piece of tag board. It's a, it's a tag board that says, someone knows who you are. Someone cares about you. You matter. You are important. It doesn't matter what this world has thrown at you. It doesn't matter what other people in your life have said. You matter here. You matter to us. And hopefully by the end of the week, they get the message that they matter massively to our great God. Watching those kids just blow your mind. See, there's so much power in a name. And someone saying, you are significant. You are a human being. You're a person. And Mephibosheth in this story is an important name. It's a, it's a name that's poignant. It's a name that, that shapes what this story is all about. Because the name Mephibosheth actually means removal of shame. Removal of shame. And in speaking out that name, David makes the statement that it's time now, Mephibosheth, for your shame to be removed once and for all. You see, friends, that's what compassion does. It very intentionally takes people's shame and replaces it with dignity. It says, you think you don't count. You think you're not worthy. You think you've blown it too many times, but that's not true. You matter. You're significant. You're valuable no matter what. And that's just what David does as he shows compassion to this young man. He begins to replace his shame with dignity. We're told that Ziba has 15 sons and 20 servants. You notice how that fact is included in there? It's included because it's, it's the point is being made. Now, guess what? Mephibosheth has 15 sons and 20 servants, all these people to serve and take care of him. He's moved from Lodabar to Jerusalem, from no place to the place, from Bakersfield to Cedar Mill, Oregon. <laughs> and most significantly, friends, this phrase, you shall always eat at my table, it says, That occurs four times in this passage. Four times in this short little story, David says, you shall always eat at my table. Why? Because only the most honored and revered and respected individuals ate at the king's table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. From dead dog to son of the king, that is the power of compassion, and it's also the gospel. Friends, 
Compassion takes shame and replaces it with dignity. I want to talk about one more thing before we close this morning, and that's where this kind of compassion comes from. Where does David get the strength, find the power to offer this kind of compassion? Where does it come from in his life? And I'll close with this point. True compassion flows out of compassion we have received. If you go back to the very beginning of this story, the whole thing starts with this statement. This whole story begins this way. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? You see, the driving force of this whole story isn't David. It isn't Mephibosheth. It's Jonathan. Jonathan has driven this story. Jonathan has done something that has changed David's heart and life and soul. And if you've not been here the last few weeks, I'll give a quick review. David, his arch kind of rival over the last number of decades has been King Saul. Saul was the first king. David was then anointed king. And Saul was jealous because Saul... He not only wanted to remain king, but when he was no longer king, he wanted his kid to be king. He wanted Jonathan to take the throne. And so he goes after David and he tries to kill him and he spends years and years hunting him. And if anyone should have been jealous of David, if anyone should have gone after David, you would think it would be Jonathan. But these two men, they forged this, this friendship, this bond, this commitment this love for one another. And at one point, Jonathan says, David, I will stand with you. I will protect you from my father. I will stay loyal to my father, but I will protect you from him. In fact, I will lay down my throne for you. I love you so much that I'll protect you and I'll give you my throne. I'll leave my position of privilege and prestige and power so that you can sit on the throne. And so there's this beautiful love relationship between Jonathan and David. And then one day, Jonathan and his father are fighting in this battle on Mount Gilboa. And they're tragically killed. And the scriptures tell us that David is so heartbroken that he, he is so grieved by this. That he, that he laments and he writes this song where he essentially says, I wish the earth would quit spinning on his axis. That's how deep my grief is over the loss of my friend and brother Jonathan. You see, friends, David had a friend who put himself in harm's way to take David out of harm's way, who lost his throne so that David could ascend to the throne. What a friend. What a friend. David had a friend like that. And the good news today is so do you. David had a friend who lost an earthly throne, but we have a friend who lost a heavenly throne to save us. David had a friend who died on Mount Gilboa for him, and we have a friend who died on Mount Calvary for us. You see, friends, do not miss this point. The message today is not get out of here and go and try really, really hard to be a more compassionate person. No, the message today is be so transformed and filled up by the compassion that God has shown you that it just runs out of your life onto the lives of those around you. The, the message isn't try harder to be compassionate. The message is be more transformed by the compassionate and overwhelming love of God. 
You see, compassion that is simply just, I want to be a compassionate. Doesn't it sound nice to be a compassionate person? Everyone in here is thinking, I wish I was more compassionate. I want to be more compassionate. Why? Well, in a sinful way, because we want to feel good about ourselves. We want to believe that we're good people and that we're good Christians. You see, that kind of compassion is not compassion at all. Because compassion that's ultimately about you is not compassion. When I'm showing compassion from a place of trying to make myself look good or feel better, then it's not really about you anymore. My compassion is actually all about me, which makes it essentially not compassion. Friends, you can only show compassion when you are fully fueled by the love and compassion of God. When your compassion comes from a place of, I must show compassion, not so that I can be acceptable, but because I am so accepted, because I am so loved, because I've had so much mercy showered onto me, I can now offer it to others. I do not need to do this for myself. I can do this fully for you because I have everything that I need in Jesus. You see, it's the power of the gospel to change the motive of the heart, which changes everything. You see, the gospel says, my father is very fond of me. My father has shown great love for me. My father has been overwhelmingly and unimaginable, unimaginably compassionate towards me. And I'm so filled I am so safe, I am so secure that I no longer have to seek self-interest or worldly security. I can just go out and offer compassion freely. You see, that's why we gather here every week, friends, to remind ourselves of the great and amazing compassion of our God. That's why every Sunday we go to this table, not because it's a ritual, not because it's a routine, not because it's just something we do in church, but to remind ourselves of this amazing, powerful, life and world-changing truth. Our God has shown so much compassion to us that he even sent his son to die on the cross, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed, that we might be reunited into a love relationship with our heavenly Father forever. You see, that truth can change your heart. That truth can fill you up. That is the truth that will empower you to be the man or woman of compassion that God longs for you to be in this world. And so this morning, take a few minutes. Reflect again on this world and reality offering, um, altering truth. Your father is fond of you. So fond that he gave his life for you. And then when you're ready, come to the table, receive the bread and the cup. You can take the elements on your own and we'll declare that truth again here together in this place. Pray with me.